Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. And a very warm welcome back to Solidarity Breakfast. A left response to the major developments in capitalism. What they trade in is not wheat. They trade in famine. A little dose of revolutionary optimism. I think it's really important to sort of express solidarity globally. It really is a deal by corporations for corporations. The union forever defending our rights down with the black leg. If you think the ABC's left wing, don't listen to this program. Solidarity Breakfast, 7.30 to 9am Saturdays, 3CR, 8.55am. Streaming and 3CR digital, podcast or audio on demand. And of course, the website, solidaritybreakfast.org.au. Solidarity forever! Good morning, everybody. This is Annie for Solidarity Breakfast, and we've got lots of things to bring to your table this morning. Uh, I went to a really fascinating speech, and so I'm going to uh, actually devote a fair amount of time to this speech. It was by Clinton Fernandez, and he was at the International uh, Bookshop uh, this week. And he is a man who, he's got a very interesting background. He's an Australian academic and former Australian Army officer, and he teaches at the Australian Defence Force Academy campus of the University of New South Wales. And his research interest is the national interest in Australia's external relations. He's got a new book out called Ireland Off the Coast of Asia, and what he is discussing in this book and uh, in the uh, thing that we're going to listen to is the background to the prosecution of Canberra lawyer Bernard Kalari and his client, a former officer of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ACES, known as Witness K. Now, Witness K cannot be identified because that's the point, isn't it, of secrecy. The charges relate to the revelations that the Australian government spied on the government of East Timor during oil and gas treaty negotiations in 2004. But uh, the speech goes through this particularly, but also goes through a whole range of other things, uh, giving an insight into power relations uh, across the board in relation to Australia, uh, uh, the state and the people. So I thought it was worthwhile uh, spending a little bit of time. Oh, and uh, look who's turned up. G'day, how are you, Rebecca? Good, thanks. Uh, Nice to see you. It's a nice day outside. It is. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so I was just telling listeners that uh, we're going to spend a bit of time with Clinton Fernandez's yep. speech. And uh, we're going to move on then to uh, uh, the rally that was held outside uh, the train station, uh, Flinders Street, on Sunday, uh, hands off Venezuela, which is a yep. slow, ble- slow bleed of democracy at the moment. And uh, then we're going to move on to the banks. We're going to talk to uh, Bill Mitchell. Uh, uh, economics professor at uh, Newcastle University about the shameful uh, events that have just been uh, uh, happening around uh, the Banking Commission and what it means uh, and what uh, the financialisation of the Australian banking system uh, has, the effects it has on us as people, as part of society. 
but before we do, uh, you know, there's a subscription drive going on. Yes. At, at 3CR. It's February every year. They call for subscriptions. Uh, $35 concession pensioners and 75 wage to 150 solidarity band and organisation. You can give us a call during the week on 94198377 to become a subscriber and I'm hoping that you're enjoying listening to 3CR right now. So if you need to update your subscription or uh, if you want to become a new subscriber, be part of our team. Yep. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 8377 or visit 3cr.org.au. 3CR, the voice of dissent. Yeah, that's right, the voice of dissent. As we hope you are, then um, help to feed Radical Radio and subscribe now. Now we're going to move on to the meaty stuff, Clinton Fernandez, as I said. I don't need to uh, rabbit it on. Uh, it's quite fascinating. Let's just uh, start with uh, something that happens on the 9th of September 2004. Okay, on the 9th of September 2004, uh, a car bomb goes off outside the Australian Embassy in Jakarta. Um, there are several people killed, including an Indonesian policeman, several people standing in line for their visas. Um, and that uh, car bomb uh, happens at uh, the same time as something else is going on elsewhere in the archipelago to our north. Uh, at the same time as the car bomb is going off, uh, an espionage operation is underway in East Timor. And uh, it's the contrast between uh, those two elements that I think uh, I'll frame this talk on. Early 2000s was uh, part of the decade of terror. Uh, the invasion of Iraq uh, had uh, raised the terrorist threat. Uh, the Bali bombings of 12th of October 2002 uh, put Islamic terrorism on the agenda. In about July 2004, uh, there was a white paper on counterterrorism issued by the Howard government. And in that white paper, uh, the words extremist Islamist terror uh, we mentioned more than 100 times, and Indonesia was said to be a focus more than 50 times in the space of that 100-page white paper. So it was very clear uh, that the government uh, was, at least in its, in its rhetoric, was identifying uh, the key focus of uh, policy and uh, intelligence as extremist Islamist terror in the Indonesian archipelago. And yet... Uh, the focus of ASIS, uh, or the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, was not on extremist Islamic terror in the uh, Indonesian archipelago, but on a country that's about 95% Catholic with no known Islamic uh, terrorist groups, namely East Timor. The instruments of statecraft are varied. Uh, there's diplomacy, which is what diplomats do. There's tradecraft. Uh, um, there's uh, tr you know, trade agreements. Um, there's monetary policy. There are things that are overt, but there are things that are covert, and they both try and achieve the same thing. And usually what's happening below the surface are hidden from public view, and you sometimes find out about them 30 years later, sometimes you don't. But in this case, uh, we have a very clear picture that emerges uh, because there was grave 
uh, disquiet within the Australian Secret Intelligence Service at the diversion of uh, scarce resources away from the war on terror into the targeting of the Timorese High Command, the senior leadership uh, during oil and gas negotiations uh, between Australia and East Timor. The uh, support for oil companies is long-running in Australian foreign policy, um, and it's taken uh, certain forms that most people are simply not aware of. In uh, the 1950s, nobody knew what actually lay under the waterline. Um, and so um, the Bureau of Mineral Resources, uh, today called Geoscience Australia, conducted a comprehensive survey of the, the, uh, the prolongation uh, of the coastline under the water, that's called the Continental Shelf. A ship would leave Port Melbourne, it would go off to a predetermined point, turn left 20 nautical miles and come back. And it would do this 24 hours a day, seven days a week, for years, mapping the entire continental shelf. It trailed behind it a, a proton precession magnetometer that would work out uh, what's the iron content underneath the water. There was a, a, a device to measure uh, the gravitational field of the Earth under the waterline. If the Earth is not solid, it's uh, got a solid crust, but it's got a molten core, um, and it's, the mass is not distributed evenly. So if you can map the gravitational field, you can work out what's underneath the waterline. There was a... Uh, uh, a winch, a coring and dredging winch uh, with a 20-ton braking strength that was 10 kilometers long and would scrape the seabed. So it was 10 kilometers deep, scrape the seabed, collect sediments, and on a three decks of a ship, this is all happening 24 hours a day, three decks of a ship, there'd be real-time tests to work out what exactly is under the waterline. Okay? There was, um, uh, if it's, if it's oceanic crust, um, that tends to be basaltic, uh, which is a combination of uh, rocks that are rich in silica and magnesium. If it's coming in from the, from the uh, rivers, uh, dropping it onto the, uh, onto the ocean floor, um, that's uh, granitic, which means it's rich in silica and alumina. So all of that has to be worked out. Okay? And after more than a decade, all at public expense, uh, the uh, Bureau of Mineral Resources, today called Geoscience Australia, uh, went from knowing nothing about what... Australia looked like under the waterline, to having a very clear picture of uh, exactly uh, where the troughs were, where the, uh, uh, where the crevices were, the, the crevices were uh, what it looks like if there's kelp uh, in, trapped in the rocks, that's a possible predictor uh, of uh, liquefied natural gas trapped there. Um, and so all of this was done at public expense. Now, it's not secret in the sense that it was announced in the budget, okay? but you have to be kind of reading the journal of the Bureau of Mineral Resources and all their findings to work out this is actually going on. Uh, so this begins in December uh, 1970, um, and it's happening at the same time as Australia is negotiating uh, the Law of the Sea Convention uh, with all the other countries of the world um, you know, between 73 and uh, 82. So it begins in December 1970, and they know the Law of the Sea Convention is coming on. And so the geoscience is feeding into uh, the negotiators secretly. Okay. So, for example, the negotiators say, well, that country has proposed that uh, um, a ridgeline under the water should be defined in a particular way, because it's not exactly clear where something starts and when it ends. And so they would go and run tests, say, for example, in, Macqu in, in the Macquarie Ridge, which is near Macquarie Island, uh, that is uh, uh, in the southwest Pacific, I think below New Zealand and, and above Antarctica, so it's in the middle of that. 
Okay. And they said, well, if you, define, uh, if you define the continental shelf in the law of the sea convention like this, then we lose half the ridge. But if you define it in some other way, then we gain all the ridge. And so they went through the entire, all, all the seven subantarctic islands, all the geoscience data, and they ensured that Australia got the best possible uh, definition of the continental shelf, which is uh, explained in Article 76 of the Law of the Sea Convention. Uh, I won't go into the technicalities of that, it's in the book. And so then what happens? They say, well, um, we've got all this geoscientific information, we've got uh, a very broad continental shelf uh, in the northwest. Okay, it's quite shallow and it just slopes gently for about 350 nautical miles off the coast of Broome, Karatha, Karanara, all those other places. It just keeps going, Barrow Island. Uh, there's not much of a continental shelf on the east coast of Australia, okay, but there's a long continental shelf, a broad margin on the northwest shelf. Um, so they have all this information, all this geoscientific in uh, information, um, and other countries do too, you know, advanced um, industrial countries like Norway, for example, which uh, is quite interested in its oil in the North Sea um, and has interests in something called the Svalbard, which is up in, near, the, near the poles. Um, so the, Norway has its own oil company. It's called Statoil. We don't have our own oil company. So what the federal cabinet did, this is now we're into the, uh, the period of the, of the labor government, okay, of the uh, mid-1980s. Uh, it takes all this geoscientific data and it hands it across to the oil companies. It doesn't charge them very much, less than 5% of what it cost. The Northwest Shelf Project is formed around November 1984. Uh, it's an investment, a private investment, of $27 billion, uh, inaugurated by former Premier Brian Burke of Western Australia. Uh, it's a coalition of, uh, of companies led by Woodside Petroleum. What they do is they take all this geoscientific data, they go off to the Northwest Shelf knowing where the, the gas is, Grill the hole, up comes the gas, and it results in the biggest single export contract ever signed by anybody for anything in Australian history. It's a $25 billion contract uh, to sell uh, gas to uh, Guangdong province of China uh, in 2002. Five years later, the same, the same uh, coalition uh, you know, consortium uh, has an even bigger contract, $45 billion once again to China. And it's bottomless. Now it's 68 billion. Now all of that has been done uh, at public expense. So if we were to take, for example, the standard capitalist principle that if you take the risk, you bear the cost, you should get the profit, um, then in fact uh, the profit should go to us. Um, but we don't have a capitalist system. Uh, we, have, we, we don't. Um, I, I just fail to see. I'm not even presenting what I'm saying as caricature or irony. Um, in fact, what we have is a system where the shareholders of Woodside and uh, the other uh, uh, members of the uh, consortium uh, benefit disproportionately. Yes, you're on Solidarity Breakfast and we're listening to Clinton Fernandez and ostensibly his uh, conversation is about, and he does move towards this, the upcoming prosecution of Canberra lawyer Bernard Kalari and his client, a former officer of the Australian Secret Intelligence Services, known only as Witness K, um, but uh, he obviously gives us a much broader view of how this particular event is uh, related to so many other elements that are so pertinent to our lives today, politically speaking. So we'll move on. I love that uh, everybody in the room really enjoyed it when he said we don't really live in a yeah, capitalist, <laughs> capitalist society. <system. laughs> 
Now, this is the context in which I think we should see the government's support for a particular company, in this case Woodside, uh, in the dispute with the Steemall, uh, with the espionage against Steemall, uh, and the trial, the upcoming trial of Bernard Collary and Witness K. It's not enough to just look at this particular trial, but to see it in the broader context of massive state, state subsidy for the private sector. Okay, so what exactly happens? Well, in uh, May 2002, Timor is supposed to become an independent state. Now, three months beforehand, Timor receives uh, a legal opinion by three leading uh, international maritime law experts, and it shows that if international law were to apply, uh, then Timor would get uh, a maritime border halfway between Australia and East Timor. Uh, it came to the, I know it came to the attention of the, uh, the Australian government through our embassy there. Uh, and so in March 2002, three months before Timor was, became independent, uh, and therefore had an independent legal personality. Um, uh, Alexander Downer, as foreign minister, withdrew from the jurisdiction of the uh, maritime section of the International Court of Justice. Okay, you're allowed to do that. If you're a state, you can say, well, I don't accept the treaty in respect of this. Um, and so the International Court of Justice, one of the uh, uh, organs of the, the Supreme Judicial Organ of the United Nations, um, if Timor had taken us to that, uh, to that court, the World Court as it's known, uh, it... Um, I would have gotten a fair deal, would have gotten its, its rights under international law, but because it couldn't, uh, since we'd withdrawn from the, the maritime board, uh, jurisdiction of the International Court of Justice, um, Timor uh, had no ability to enforce its rights. Um, and it also had no money, uh, because uh, you know it doesn't really have any money, it, it, its money uh, comes from the oil. There was a, a lot of arm-twisting to force Timor to sign these treaties, um, and by April 2004, it became pretty clear to the foreign minister uh, that uh, there was not going to be uh, uh, a complete surrender by the Timorese. They were only going to, to agree to certain things because they really had no money, but they weren't prepared to sign away all their rights uh, once and for all, which is what they were required to do. Uh, there's a very important gas field uh, called, Greater, uh, called Sunrise and Troubadour. Together they're called Greater Sunrise, and so Timor wanted its hands, to get its hands on that, but Australia also wanted to get its hands on that. Uh, so April 2004, uh, talks finally stall, and it looks like uh, it's not going to happen. Uh, according to information that has since become public, uh, Alexander Downer is alleged to have ordered the, uh, the, the bugging of the Timorese uh, cabinet officers in order to uh, uh, work out exactly what they needed to offer them or what would work uh, to make them sign the treaty. Um, and uh, according to... Now, this is an educated guess... By around July 2004, the, uh, the bugs were in place. Um, uh, the Australian Secret Intelligence Service uh, was told, focus on Timor. This is, and bear in mind, by this time, the counterterrorism white paper uh, has been published. Uh, extremist Islamist uh, terrorism in the Indonesian archipelago is a focus. Uh, but ACES has been told, no, what we want you to do is uh, go and spy on the Timorese. So they used the cover of an aid program, an Aussie aid program, to refurbish the uh, cabinet offices. Um, and they go in and they bug uh, certain offices. Okay. Uh, one person who is going to be tried, I'm going to talk about in a second, his, um, he is called Witness K. So he is said to be the former, or at the time he was, the director of all technical operations for ACES. Okay. So he's not some low-level guy who you know, pretends to service your... Uh, your uh, photocopy machine in order to steal the, um, the carbon uh, the cylinder, uh, which is what they usually do to, to work out what's been photocopied in it. Yeah, they get 
jobs working for Toshiba and places like that. You know, uh, so, but we're not talking about someone like that. We're talking about the head of all technical operations for ASUS. That is somebody who knows where all the bugs are everywhere. Um, he's said to have had grave misgivings about it. He couldn't work out why uh, this was going on. He began asking too many questions. Uh, and so he was told, we are having a new culture within ASUS. We need to have generational change. Uh, and so uh, uh, you're not going to have uh, uh, your position anymore. We have to make some restructuring inside ASUS. And so he was let go. Um, nothing much happened after he was let go. Okay? He didn't really do anything. Although he was, of course, dissatisfied. Uh, but then uh, one year later, uh, just after Timor finally did sign a treaty, after the bugging in September and October 2004, uh, soon after, early in the next year, um, the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, Ashton Calvert, uh, resigned from the department, from the position as secretary, and joined the board of directors of Woodside Petroleum. Um, and um, um, that obviously led to even more consternation within ASUS and elsewhere, but not within DFAT, where such arrangements are actually quite common. Um, and if you look at, I've traced the careers of a few people in the book uh, using things like their last known position at, at uh, DFAT and then their LinkedIn profiles. And you see what appears to be a revolving door uh, between um, uh, certain oil companies, uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade, uh, project management, and now corporate affairs for those same oil companies. So there's a revolving door. November 2007, uh, Kevin Rudd becomes Prime Minister. Uh, and uh, Howard loses his seat. Uh, Alexander Downer is no longer foreign minister, and uh, so he's out of parliament. Uh, he retains his seat, but he doesn't want to be in parliament anymore, so he leaves. And his first position that he takes up is a lucrative consultancy with Woodside Petroleum. And so that really uh, uh, got Witness K's uh, goat, uh, and he began a complaint process. So this is all, he's not a whistleblower in the sense that people think of a whistleblower. Yeah. He is a guy who made a protected disclosure, a protected complaint, to the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. The Inspector General of Intelligence and Security is within the executive branch of government, so not, it's not genuine oversight. It's not legislative scrutiny. It's not judicial oversight. It's within the executive branch of government. But you're allowed to make a complaint to the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security. And uh, the IGES at the time told Witness K. Um, that you have certain options, and your options include uh, uh, taking private legal advice. Now, ASIS is unlike most organizations, but in one respect, it is very much like other organizations. It has industrial disputes. Uh, people who want to get promoted can't get promoted. Uh, people who, uh, or, you know, it has another aspect to it as well. Sometimes people have post-traumatic stress disorder, and so uh, they need to see somebody. Well, you can't go and see a normal industrial relations lawyer, and you can't go and see a normal psychiatrist. And so there are a couple of people who are, who are nominated by ASIS to be the designated uh, uh, listener for ASIS officers uh, with um, an industrial relations dispute. And one such person was Bernard Polary. Uh, Bernard Polary is the former uh, Attorney General of the Australian Capital Territory, a uh, successful um, barrister, uh, trial lawyer, um, and um, uh, he was the person that uh, ASIS uh, said could be the, the lawyer for any uh, industrial relations dispute. Witness Carey is said to have gone to him and said that uh, he's been uh, uh, terminated as a result of uh, 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 a new culture within, within, DFAT, uh, within, within ASIS, 
And so Kaleri said, well, what is this uh, new culture? What do you mean? And he says, well, I was ordered to carry out an operation to bug the government of East Timor. And uh, that uh, made him pause, because Bernard Kaleri has some as a background, which ACES is well aware of, I have to say. Uh, Bernard Kaleri, as the former Attorney General of the ACT, uh, is also a long-term uh, supporter of the rights of self-determination of the Timorese. Uh, his father was shot down uh, over the coast of the Netherlands in a bomber uh, during World War II. Uh, and he was brought up uh, by uh, uh, you know, his mother, and uh, uh, they come from a, a Catholic family. And uh, the case of Timor was well known to them. Um, and when Gareth Evans ordered that uh, crosses be removed from the, uh, the lawn outside the Indonesian embassy after the Delhi massacre, the Santa Cruz massacre of 12th November 1991, Bernard Colleri, as the Attorney General of the ACT, began to take legal action to stop Gareth Evans. Uh, and so Bernard happened to be in a position where uh, he uh, you know, had this conflict, uh, this, this moral conflict, what am I going to do? Uh, so he decided to stop speaking to Witness K and decided to conduct uh, his own legal analysis with external advice to work out you know, the legality of what actually has occurred. So here's where the, what the problem is. The, uh, the Intelligence Services Act 2001 defines uh, the role of ACES. Okay? So ACES can only be used for its proper role, and that is uh, for the defense, uh, national security, uh, and economic well-being of Australia. And so at what point does the economic well-being of Australia morph into the economic well-being of a company and morph into the economic well-being of the Secretary of the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade uh, and the economic well-being of the, uh, the Foreign Minister uh, who is up to uh, uh, you know, all kinds of manoeuvres? Uh, but then uh, there were other, other aspects as well as part of the legal advice that he got. Uh, here I'm simply saying what he says his legal advice was. I, not making any legal claims of my own, uh, and that is that there was a conspiracy to defraud uh, a joint venture partner. Okay. It's not like your. It's not as though economic well-being can never be used. It's not as though ACES can never be used for economic purposes. Uh, but then, in certain cases, when uh, Timor and Australia meet as joint venture partners uh, under the uh, terms of the Timor Sea Treaty, uh, it becomes. Uh, uh, a crime to, def to defraud your joint venture partner. Uh, it's actually covered in the ACT criminal code, which is where the operation was planned and ordered. So section 334 of the criminal code of the, of the Australian Capital Territory uh, makes conspiracy to defraud uh, a crime. Uh, but it's also a common law crime, conspiracy. Um, and eventually, uh, Bernard tried to, uh, uh, tried to uh, uh, set up a, a meeting between the Timorese side um, and the Australian side to see if some private matters could be, private arrangements could be made which would not embarrass the Australian government at all. Um, and was completely rebuffed. Timor then began private arbitration uh, under, uh, at the Permanent Court of Arbitration in The Hague. It was all private, nobody knew about it. Uh, but uh, what actually happened after that was that the Australian government itself issued a press release saying the Timor has taken us to the permanent court of arbitration at the Hague for arbitration. They say that we've been uh, conducting espionage against him, and uh, we, we neither confirm nor deny any intelligence allegations, but we've conducted ourselves in good faith at all times. Okay, so the cover was not blown by Witness K. The cover was not blown by, by Bernard Caleri. The cover was not blown, uh, blown by Shinali Guzmao. It was blown by the Australian government itself in a press release. 
Um, uh, after that, uh, the next event was September 2013, uh, when the government changed, and uh, Senator George Brandis became Attorney General, and um, uh, Julie Bishop became Foreign Minister, um, and um, Bernard Colary's house was raided. Uh, the house of uh, Witness K was raided. His passport was confiscated. He still hasn't gotten it back. Uh, and George Brandis uh, warned from the floor of the Senate uh, that uh, prosecutions could uh, be launched. Um, now, five years, nothing happened for five years. And then, and then um, Timor and Australia finally signed uh, a treaty. Uh, and the treaty uh, did recognize the median line. Uh, but it provided for no compensation for past exploitation. So about uh, $5 billion worth of revenue has come out of uh, uh, certain oil fields called Labanera Coralina. Um, the total aid that Australia has given to Timor is about a billion. Um, so this makes uh, East Timor Australia's largest donor. And I say in the book that this is not a typo. Okay, so East Timor is Australia's largest donor. Um, but the treaty provides for no compensation for past exploitation. Um, and soon after the treaty was signed, um, it was set off, of course, to the Senate Committee for Inquiry. Uh, it received, I'm not making this up, it received 45 minutes of consideration, uh, and then it was stamped. And then uh, uh, Bernard Galeri and Witness K received uh, notifications that they're going to be charged okay, with uh, re releasing information about ACES. Uh, that's an offence under the Crimes Act and under the Intelligence Services Act, and the Crimes Act says how, how long you're going to get. So at the moment, uh, that thing would be 10 years in prison, but uh, because the alleged crime uh, is said to have occurred before the penalties were increased, um, it's a two-year sentence maximum. You're on Solidarity Breakfast. It's, you can see how it all gets uh, it joins together. Yeah, the the web. The web and how... Uh, the uh, changing of the uh, the amount of legislation around uh, terrorist laws, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, how that ha actually does have effect on uh, not on so-called terrorist threat, but can be misused in so many different ways. Yeah. Uh, uh, we're listening to Clinton Fernandez, and he's talking about uh, the prosecution of uh, Canberra lawyer. Uh, Bernard Kaleri and his client, a former officer of the Australian Secret Intelligence Service, ACES, and this person's known as Witness K, and because uh, it's too much dynamite to know what the name of a, a former spy is, um, and uh, this is around uh, the Australian government spying on the government of East Timor during oil and gas treaty negotiations in 2004. Now, uh, we have spent some time on this because it's such a, a fascinating uh, forensic look mm -hmm. at uh, this affair. Uh, and you can look at the work that uh, Clinton Fernandez has done in his book, Island Off the Coast of Asia. But I couldn't resist. I, the questions that people asked were really compelling. And some of the things that... Uh, uh, Clinton said in response are just so worth listening to. I should add a few things which you have, just to put it in context. You really need to, to understand this, um, uh, how the thing works, because you don't see it from their perspective. Okay, You're seeing it from your perspective. And that is your perspective is, well, uh, isn't it so much of a hassle? What about the negative publicity, etc., etc.? Uh, and that's not the way uh, policy works. Uh, I've had a look at this like for many years about how policy works, and you can look at it. I'll just put a few facts before you. Um, the invasion of Iraq has resulted in, uh, in a huge amount of terrorism, 
uh, destruction of states, uh, migrant uh, slash refugee crisis, um, and uh, policy continues with no threat to it. Uh, the government of Saudi Arabia uh, uh, wound up uh, knocking off uh, a journalist in its consulate in Turkey, um, and there are sanctions on Venezuela. Um, power systems do not flinch uh, from uh, taking hard action. Uh, they're not worried about negative publicity. Um, that's not the way policy works. Um, the a recipient of the Companion to the Order of Australia is uh, Richard Wolcott of Timor fame, John Howard, etc., uh, etc. Et um, and uh, power systems are not worried about the things you're worried about. Uh, about, well, isn't it so much of a difficulty? Isn't it, uh, what about the negative publicity? Isn't that going to harm them? No, it doesn't. Okay? Uh, they have gotten away with uh, far, far worse. Uh, and public opinion doesn't change anything. Public action, yeah, okay, that's a different thing. But my opinion, no. Just further to that, at the time they were charged, um, I think it was Andrew Wilkie who rather obliquely suggested that the charges were laid not to actually have revenge on them, but that it was in fact an attempt to preempt somebody else yes. revealing something in the contemporary. Yes, there was um, a speech he gave on the 20th of June uh, mm-hmm. last year. So, uh, which we said all that. And in fact, he's the guy who revealed because the, the fact of the charges was itself protected mm-hmm. uh, in the letters. Uh, like Witness K was not allowed to retain his letter. It was delivered to him by uh, an armed escort. He was shown it, his charge, and it was taken away. Uh, Bernard Colary was allowed to see his letter, but uh, certain things were not uh, in the letter. Um, and it was all under privilege. And so uh, Andrew Wilkie somehow found out and then uh, said it under parliamentary privilege, which is why we know about this. And he, he has indicated um, that he will use parliamentary privilege from time to time to ventilate uh, other matters. Uh, but yes, it is, a, uh, it is a warning to anybody else who has uh, doubts uh, about ASIS, about um, uh, intelligence operations. Uh, I've never met Witness K, okay? And so I'm not, I'm not like speaking as an insider who you know, confers there and then kind of comes outside and tells people what's going on. So, so I don't know what strategies there his legal team is going to be. And I've never met Kaleri's lawyers. Like, I, I know Bernard, but I've never discussed it with his lawyers, and why would they talk to me, right? Um, and I'm not saying this, like, you know, fingers crossed. I actually have never met his lawyers. I don't know Witness K. Uh, well, there is what's called the International Organizations Privileges and Immunities Act, uh, now, this is an act of uh, federal parliament uh, which confers immunity in certain cases. Uh, so you look at the International Organization's Privileges and Immunities Act, look at Section 9 of that act. Um, that says that if you are a, an advocate, judge, or witness before a proceedings involved in the International Court of Justice, then in certain circumstances, you can be immune from prosecution. Now, that would require the government of Timor-Leste to assert its privilege and immunity and say, well, Colary acted for us and Witness K was his witness and therefore it's a thing. I don't know. I would suspect uh, that the government of Timor is about as amoral as the government of Australia uh, and would be quite happy to throw these guys under a, under the bus, under a bus. And uh, uh, like I, I, I'm not particularly enamored of states. I just don't think that they have any great moral sort of component to them. Um, just look at uh, the fact that they spend about, uh, what is it, uh, for years they spent like less than 10% of their budget on health and education combined, uh, and a huge amount of their budget on big contracts for quite wealthy people. Is there any team on it? Yeah. 
Yeah. I'm talking about East Timor, right, right. Um, I, I, I have, they, they respond to powerful domestic sectors, just like us. Um, and so uh, it would require them to turn up in the ACT Magistrates Court, along with <coughs> the defence team, and say, we're asserting immunity, and these guys uh, are covered by it. Uh, they do, they do. Uh, that's, that's a defence, just to answer you. That's one defence. One of the others, uh, perhaps to argue that the uh, operation itself uh, was, uh, was somehow outside the purposes of the Intelligence Services Act, uh, but I, 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 I would say that they would still have, uh, under the Act, the ability to complain only to the Inspector General of Intelligence and Security, okay, not to somebody else. And that's very different to Australia, uh, to, to the United States. So, for example... Uh, in the U.S., uh, this is as a result of the uh, uh, you know, Nixon's secret uh, bombing of Cambodia. It was secret. It was secret not to the Cambodians, no. but, but it was secret to the to the to the U.S. Congress. Okay, and so uh, uh, part of the reforms after that, and the various uh, committees, the Church Committee and so on, about assassinations, was that all intelligence operations uh, fit into certain categories, and depending on the category they have to be disclosed to certain other people than the executive branch, right? So uh, the, what they call the Gang of Four, who is the uh, Republican and uh, Democrat leaders in the Senate, Republican and Democrat leaders in Congress, are briefed on intelligence operations. And the Gang of Eight, which is the four I've mentioned, plus the deputies, uh, are also shown it. And in fact, their, their um, advisors, their staffers, are, are actually couriered across the Potomac River to uh, CIA headquarters, and they are shown footage of drone strikes as they occur, uh, just after they occur, right? So while there's a covert drone war going on and people are being killed and, you know, weddings and so on are being uh, mistaken for, uh, for military-aged males and carnage is being caused in Yemen and Afghanistan, it's not occurring entirely within the executive branch, okay? Congress or the legislative arm of government is involved. They see all the intelligence. They see all the operations. Now, the big difference between that and Australia is that under our conventions, an incoming government is not briefed about intelligence operations ordered by its predecessor. So nobody would have known about the Timor operation, certainly not the new foreign minister, Stephen Smith, who was foreign minister under Rudd, certainly not Rudd himself, who was foreign minister under Gillard, and certainly not Bob Carr, who was foreign minister under Gillard as well. Right? Uh, And so... Um, they, were never, they were never told, whereas that's not the case in, in other countries, like in the United States. Uh, an incoming government is not briefed about past operations ordered by its predecessor. If the prime minister himself, let's say Mr. Shorten, were to, were to go to the head of ACES and say, I want to see that, the convention is still no. It can only be revealed with the consent, the written consent, the, the, the old prime minister. Okay, so there's a huge uh, rule of law problem uh, in our system. There's a major sort of hiatus in governance uh, of our intelligence agencies. Yeah. To pitch it, like you want to think, uh, see, see things from their perspective, yes. right? Um, the. Uh, sure. Uh, Woodside shares are going up. They're, they came from, they were a little known company. In November 1984, uh, they are now in the uh, top 
top 20 companies by market capitalization in the stock exchange. Um, they've gotten quite wealthy. The shareholders who own them have gotten wealthy as well. It's been a successive policy, and the policy is working the way it should have. Now, how, how do I actually understand this? Why do they do it? Well, look, the most important decisions uh, aren't who to vote for in any kind of economy or country. It's what's to be produced, how is it to be produced, uh, and who's going to share in it. That, that, that's the most important, those are the most important decisions that are actually made. Now, those decisions are not, in, are not in, in, in under democratic control. Those decisions are under private hand, private control. Um, and so people who go to government, uh, the ambitious backbenchers who want to become prime ministers, uh, they have to go and audition uh, before those uh, groups that control uh, the commanding heights. Um, and so... They, the orientation is, well, what can we do to please you? Uh, that, that is, I'm just describing standard policy. Well, I'm, I'm referring to where the decisions are made. If the decisions are made uh, in the boardroom, uh, then what the government has to do is create the conditions for that boardroom's profitability. Because unless the boardroom makes decisions about what to produce, how to produce it, and so on, nobody else is going is to get, get a job. Uh, okay, if, uh, that's that's where the that's that's where the how the thing works. A system works in which, in a, in a way, um, in which the most important decisions are those about what's to be produced, how is it to be produced, who's going to profit, and those decisions are not in the hands of the government. They are in the hands of the private sector. Well, in the first case, I think it's just a matter of, of understanding. Um, Understanding um, business, really. I like my favorite newspaper is the Financial Times and the Fin Review. Uh, you know, apart from the National Archives, those are the most frequently cited kind of things, and it's in the back of my head. Um, how I mean, look, the only the only place that this case is being reported in the private media. I mean, I'm not talking about Crikey, which is different. That's a special case. Is the Fin Review. It's only people like Lisa Murray and so on who are actually reporting it. Fairfax is not. Uh, forget about commercial, I don't know, commercial radio, TV. I haven't had a TV in 20 years, I don't know. But, you know, um, because those are the most important papers. I mean, look, if you ask the average activist about, uh, name the top 20 companies in our stock exchange, how many companies are there, uh, how much are they worth, uh, how many, you know, who's actually running them. Um, fewer people who are political activists would know that. Uh, they would know more about uh, politics uh, in terms of what's going on in Parliament and things like that. So one of the things I try to do in the book is show that um, of the top 20 companies in the stock exchange, um, we've got, they're run by 190 directors, that's it. Okay? And 16 of them live in one suburb of Sydney, Mossman. Uh, four of them live in the whole state of Queensland, which means Mossman has four times more directors on the top 20 companies than the whole state of Queensland. Um, the, the nature of our economy, the economic literacy, I think, of the activist community uh, would have to be uh, raised. Um, and to see the world from the perspective of those that actually own it. Um, and that's how you try to understand how the thing works. So that's really what I've tried to do in the book, try to see the world from the perspective of those who own it. Um, and you can understand the stock exchange um, and, and how the system works. There's about 2,400 
companies at any given time. Um, 200 of them uh, make up 80% of all the money in the stock exchange, uh, and 20 of them make up 50% of all the money in the stock exchange. Okay, um, and of those 20, they got 190 directors, and most of the uh, 60 of them live in one suburb of Sydney, uh, and a very narrow group. Um, and what they do is not visible. It's not see. It's not a conspiracy. I mean, they're just there to make profit share. And so, if 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 you want to be a politician, one of the things you do is you ask them uh, for their views, and you pay a special weight to them. Okay. And so, what we'll be trying to do, the government will, will simply create the conditions for profitability. Uh, in order to uh, make sure that uh, certain companies uh, get access to that, uh, they will, and, will and, and the government will go and send Geoscience Australia, which actually has its own maps. Geoscience Australia has its own maps. It's on the website that says that's where the tantalum is. That's where molybdenum is. That's where coltan is. That's where cobalt is. The companies take those maps, and it's not just saying, oh, well, you know, it's in sort of, you know, Warrandyte or whatever, it's right there in that rock and it looks there and it's at this depth. The companies then go in, dig it up. Uh, and I just want to say that uh, companies that are on our stock exchange that have headquarters in Australia that are listed as Australian companies are not majority owned by Australians. Okay? So, for example, BHP is 68% American owned. But if you look at the beneficial ownership, and once again, it takes a lot of effort to get this data. It's actually only a matter of plugging into a computer screen and doing it, right? But it costs $2,000 um, a month uh, or $50,000 for two years to get a Bloomberg, a Bloomberg professional subscription. That Bloomberg professional subscription is available to uh, people who are you know, at Comsec and the big stock brokerage houses. But most of us simply haven't got the resources uh, to go and get ourselves a $50,000 for two years Bloomberg subscription uh, to type in BHP. You know, where are the beneficial owners? Well, they're 68% American. Uh, Rio Tinto, 83% uh, foreign-owned. Origin, almost 100%. Okay. 3CR programs provide information and analysis you won't hear in the mainstream. Today we'll be looking at the legacy of the US war on Vietnam on Laos. And as far as corporate capitalism is concerned, it is the worst political and economic system that you can have. Our laws about jailing refugees and asylum seekers are so well crafted. Sex is not irrelevant and we like who we are, but we don't have to be imprisoned by our gender. Become a subscriber today. Call us on 9419 
Yeah, it's, it's really, really sweet. Yeah, it's nice very nice. Song. Very nice. Uh, and uh, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca. And uh, as I said, we were listening to Clinton Fernandez. What a talk. That was fantastic. Uh, we're moving on to a, uh, a rally. There was a rally down at uh, Flinders Street Station. It was quite interesting to go down to, uh, very ambitious to have a little rally outside Flinders Street Station steps. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, How many people were there? Uh, there would have been about uh, 30, 40 uh, yeah. people. Um, and did they have any projections? I know Evo Lens has been um, supporting the uh, Mapuche struggle recently yeah, with no. some projections. Oh, that's stuff. a... That's a really good idea. Yeah. It was during the day, so okay. it, wouldn't have, it wouldn't have had any real effect. Yeah, uh, it was. Uh, they had banners. It was in. It was hands off Venezuela. Uh, yeah, there was a little bit of a skirmish. Not a skirmish, but uh, a, a, a couple of people turned up to yell at yell, saying that there was li- It was all lies. It was lies, and yeah. that Maduro is a dictator. But uh, it uh, only caused people to be more staunch. So uh, here's a, a little uh, bit of that particular uh, hands off Venezuela rally. So I'll read out the statement from the newly formed Venezuela Solidarity Campaign in Melbourne. A United, a United States-led campaign of destabilisation and economic sabotage is being waged against Venezuela. Last year, Nicolas Maduro was elected as president for the second time. International observers on the scene at the time declared this a fair election, but some people refused to accept the result. Now there is an undemocratic plan to hand over to the opposition. Juan Guaido was not elected. This did not stop him from declaring himself the new president and trying to stage a military coup. Nor did it stop Donald Trump from backing Guaido, extending damaging sanctions and threatening to send 5,000 US troops to Colombia prepared to invade Venezuela. The ALP has already made a statement supporting US intervention and Guaido's takeover. We must insist that the Australian government, Mr Morrison, immediately stops supporting this undemocratic and imperialist intervention. Mr Morrison and Mr Shorter must respect the will of the people of Venezuela and accept Nicolas Maduro as the legitimate president. People around the world and in Australia are already taking action to make a difference. We are showing our support to the Venezuelan people, its legitimate government and the Bolivarian revolution demanding hands of Venezuela, stop the intervention, stop the economic war and sanctions against the democratic government of Venezuela. No war, no coup, hands of Venezuela. The Australian government should change sides to democracy and peace in Latin America. They get one of these uh, there's some more material going around that actually has contact detail if you want to get involved and you haven't contacted already. But just quickly, I want to say that uh, I became involved, I've been involved in the 
piece of movement for a little while. I've been around a year or two, and I know, and I think a lot of people know, there's a familiar pattern here. Since the Second World War, there have been a series of wars that Australia have been involved in, led by the United States, and I've got to say they've all ended in failure for the United States and the Australian government. I'm talking about Korea in the 1950s. I'm talking about Vietnam in the 1960s. I'm talking later on about Iraq, Afghanistan, and Syria. All of these had the same theme. We are going there for freedom and to save democracy. The best testimony to what was really going on is in the results. Right? In every case, a mess was created. Now, and the relevance of what is going on in Venezuela today is part of the same pattern. It's part of the same pattern. And we have the same sort of people around the world. Hands off Venezuela! Hands off Venezuela! Hands off Venezuela! Hands off Venezuela! Hands off Venezuela!
They do not want anyone to feel that they can take power. Ordinary working class and poor people take power and kick out the rich elite. While we know that process is never finished in Venezuela, they took some important steps forward. So it is important that the left and progressive movements around the world unite to oppose US intervention. It is good to see that there are groups here who've come together, who've been critical of the Venezuelan government, but have come together to oppose US intervention in Venezuela. That is really, really important because we need a protest movement opposing US attempt, in, invading countries at will, choosing governments at will. This is this will be a terrible setback for the left of the world if they manage to get rid of the Venezuelan government. What we can see already is the right wing going through poor areas and killing poor people at will, which is what happened in 2017. But the media never reported on the violence of the right wing. Uh, and I think in the, in the internet, there was very little information to counter that. So we need to actually put the other side of the story. We need to report about the atrocities of the right wing because the right wing has been knocking off trade union leaders, chivistas, human rights activists, and just ordinary poor people in the barrios. They've been, in 2017, they burnt people alive in the barrios. We need to report the facts that are not being reported in the mainstream media. So we need to ramp this up. Today is good, but we need more information, public meetings and protests. And we need to get unions on board. The, the Maritime Union has already come out against the attempted coup in Venezuela. We need more unions and progressive organisations to take steps forward. What we've seen in Venezuela is a tussle because there have been a lot of progressive initiatives by um, the Chavistas, um, Hugo Chavez-led government, followed by the Maturo-led government. Often, the state has refused to implement those reforms. That's why they had to set up the social missions to go around the state to implement free education and a whole lot of other progressive reforms. So we need to pledge in Australia, any progressive and democratic-minded Australia, Australia needs to pledge to stand with the ordinary people of Venezuela against the attempt by the rich elite backed by Trump and his cronies to overtake a democratically elected government. Hands off Venezuela! 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 You're listening to 3CR, 855 AM, the voice of the community. Roll off and pass it while the lights are off. Still green. 
Look at myself and realize the world's eyes are on our phone screens. So caught up in the world around me. Who stop caring how strangers view me? I was born in the wrong year, the wrong time. This now my destiny. So on. Where you at? 1962, it's been a minute since we kicked it. Heard you got the new tattoo. Had no friends, so I had to sit with him. Now I can quit it. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Rebecca and uh, we're just about to have a word with Bill Mitchell. Uh, we were on the steps of Flinders Street Station listening to Hands Off Venezuela, a rally that was held last Sunday. Um, and now, g'day Bill, how are you? Good, hi. Yeah, now well. we're, yeah good. We're now talking about uh, the, uh, the recent report that's come out by uh, Commissioner Haynes about the... Uh, the banks, uh, lots of things have happened, but one of the things that hasn't happened is that the uh, four big banks haven't been chastened, have they? Not really, no. I think that uh, it was almost to be expected. The um, the, the gov- federal government didn't want to have this review, this Royal Commission. The, they were dragged screaming into doing it by the Nationals and the Greens and to some extent Labor Party. Uh, They then set a terms of reference that were very narrow, Um, in other words, restricting the scope of the inquiry. They set a time period that was very short relative to the scale of the problem and what, what a Royal Commission typically would have. So in other words, the the scope was uh, limited in both uh, coverage and uh, time, and then they appointed a very conservative Royal Commissioner, Hain, uh, who was certainly uh, uh, not likely to produce a radical report. And then what do you get? Not a radical report. Well, that's right. And interestingly enough, over the last week, uh, Sally McManus from the ACTU has uh, sent, posted a video showing uh, the FOE request that they put forward to get letters that uh, show and emails that show Morrison and uh, heads of banks discussing before the Royal Commission actually gets off how the, what the term of reference should be and who they should appoint. Oh, yeah, I mean, what what happened prior to the announcement of the commission was that the the political landscape shifted dramatically towards, the uh, uh, you know, a demand for a commission. And the banks sensed that and uh, decided that they better manage it as best they could. And so they were desperate to limit the scope and uh, the duration to give them the best chance. But having said that, even within that sort of straitjacket, the the evidence that was elicited through the process was just dramatic. Yeah, it was Um, so extreme, wasn't it? the, The extent to which we have now ratified what people have felt and 
conjectured about for years about the corruption, the greed, the illegality, the you know, how do you say that word? Illegality. Yeah, that's the lots of eyes and lots of L's. Yeah, uh, and 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 just the sheer uh, indifference to to what they are actually meant to be doing, you know, providing uh, quality, uh, secure financial services to to customers. I mean, it, the scale of the revelations has been quite amazing, given how tightly controlled the scope was. And, uh, yeah, earlier we were listening to Clinton Fernandez uh, talking about the the web and the relationships between our government and the private sector and these companies. It's the same thing happening, like, with the banking sector, like people at those top level. Yeah, the revolving doors, I guess. um. Well, I mean, of course. I mean, you've just seen uh, uh, Ken Henry, who was the... um, Chairman of the board of NAB, who's now been forced to to quit uh, because of the, his uh, extremely poor performance at the commission. I mean, just total arrogance, basically. Mm. He was a former secretary of the treasury, the boss of the federal treasury. Yeah, from two thousand and one to two thousand and eleven. Yeah, so you know, the revolving doors in corporate. Life is everywhere. It should be in some way restricted. Uh, you know, you've suddenly had these ministers who become corporate lobbyists. Yeah. How do you think we can do that, though? By law. By law. Yeah. I mean, we, we, have, we have some limitations on what people can do. So a federal minister is somewhat limited in what they can do when they go into the corporate sector. But we should just we just should outlaw it for three years or something or five years to in other words to restrict the ability of uh, government decision makers to to be able to operate in their area of expertise once they go into the private sector. But uh, that won't happen. But it should. Now let's go to the indifference. Uh, one of the people that have had to fall on their sword, uh, Andrew Thorburn has been, um, was quoted as saying that uh, it's not about dishonesty, it was about being sloppy. Yeah, I mean, his claim <laughs> is that oh, once we discovered, once we discovered uh. all of this stuff, of uh, well, he was specifically, I believe, talking about uh, fees for no service. Yeah. And uh, fees on dead people. And uh, I, I, his, his sort of way of... Uh, Brushing that to make it look reasonable was that oh once the the real problem was that we discovered it but we didn't do something about it quick enough. Yeah, quick right. Enough. And, we I mean, couldn't they, cover it up quick enough. And uh, the, I mean, the point was that they didn't do anything about it until they were really sprung. Yeah. And, uh, uh, they, they 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 must have known about all of this. I mean. Uh, well, uh, it, uh, AMP seemed to have had a, a business model that required it. Yeah. Oh, sure. I mean, the whole sector, uh, the whole wealth management sector requires it, and they built they built it that way, and they knew about it. Uh, if the top, you know, you've you've got one of two two explanations. If the top management didn't know about it, well, then they were incompetent, and if they did know about it, well, then they were responsible. They, they were uh, they were obviously responsible. Now, they're, they're, 
they're saying, oh, well, you know, we, we just didn't act quickly enough. Well, they wouldn't have acted at all unless the Royal Commission had it occurred. That's exactly right. And uh, But then on the other hand, you hear some uh, people who are, I must say, journalists for the, uh, well, the upper, uh, upper echelons of the Australian, or as we, the people who represent the Australian, saying things like, uh, well, you know, really, banks are just commercial outfits built to return profits to shareholders. So what would you expect? Yeah. Well, banks banks are not a typical private sector company. Banks are sort of a curious... In the way banks have evolved, they're a curious public-private partnership. Mm. And what I mean by that is that uh, effectively banks are guaranteed by the government. And... Uh, uh, which means so, so when the global financial crisis occurred, uh, came in you know, um, late 2007, early 2008, somewhere around there, um, the, the Australian banks didn't go broke like a lot of the banks abroad, and they their public relations voice was, oh, look how robust we are. You know, we're very well managed. We're doing the right thing by the people. But the reality was that the, the big four banks were within days of insolvency and if uh, the Rudd government hadn't have uh, offered the wholesale funding guarantee. And what, what happened was that the, the big banks were, wouldn't have been able to roll over their loan book because the wholesale international wholesale markets dried up very quickly after the Lehman's crash in October, and the, our banks were as exposed as any. It wasn't nothing to do with their good management. It was the fact hmm. that the federal government basically offered, told the financial markets that we will guarantee all loans that uh, our big four banks uh, take out, and that was the reality. And uh, so, so, so to say that their only responsibility is to their private owners, the shareholders, is to completely miss the point that effectively, like no other company, the banks have a... Uh, at that time, it was an explicit guarantee, but, of course, that guarantee will always be given yeah. to to the financial sector. And uh, so they're public-private partnerships and they owe the public uh, uh, a duty of care and to provide products that advance the well-being of public I mean, during the Royal Commission, you had people saying that that they were motivated by what made the most money for the, the the institution, even though they knew that the products that they were flogging off to the public weren't going to be the best products for the the, the customer. Now, that's an absolute outrage. Yeah, yeah. Uh, given this, and given that uh, for uh, people out there, no, well, Rebecca says that her father received $100 in... A Refund from <laughs> Commonwealth Bank. And, <laughs> which is, you know, hilarious, yeah. except, that, except that if it wasn't so terrible, because, you know, people have died yeah. over this, uh, the, what's happened here. Pe- whole people's lives have been destroyed. Uh, and uh, and in some ways this could be called a statistic, but for ordinary people this is not the case. So how is it possible to whip 
these people into into the, or this class because when I I've been reading about this, people like Paul Kelly from the Australian want to call talk, they he keeps talking about people like the political class and the the banking uh, sector and uh, you know depersonalizing it mm. to the point where uh, we're now supposed to believe the narrative which is that. The NAB chief, uh, Ken Henry, or the uh, chairman, Ken Henry and uh, Andrew Thorburn, are going to be the sacrificial lambs. Therefore, blood has been shed and business as usual because we saw that the stock exchange, uh, the uh, the uh, bank's shares uh, went up meteorically. Yeah, it's, it was ridiculous. But look, the point, the point, the point is that most people think that somehow the financial sector is is extremely important to the operations of the real economy you know yeah. cr- creating creating uh, uh, production and jobs and all of this the the fact is that the financial sector is the most unproductive sector in the economy it actually adds nothing to the economy much it uh, it shuffles wealth it's a giant. It's, it's sort of like Crown Plaza down there in uh, Spencer Street. It's just a great big casino that shuffles wealth and 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 to get to to make more products to speculate on. And they suck us in to buying them, uh, to buying their 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 range of financial services. So that's the first point that people should really realise, that if we start really hacking into the financial sector and disciplining it and bringing it back down to earth, then we're not really going to injure ourselves, the broad population, our prosperity. The second point is that that what, what the Royal Commission should have done, what the most urgent thing it should have done, was to break what we call the vertical integration of the banking system that's, a, that's emerged over over the years of deregulation. And what we mean by vertical integration is that uh, the bank the banks used to be deposit taking and small loan institutions. And they, you know, you'd go down, you put, you know, when we were yeah. kids, we were encouraged. To, you know, we had little bank accounts at school, right. and we'd, we'd put in a couple of bob and whatever. And and the banks used that was the, what the banks did, and they they would lend for ordinary people to buy their homes because that was the major way which 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 we could generate any form yeah, of wealth. And you paid back time. with a bit of interest. They all you sounded reasonable. Back, and the interest was regulated, uh, uh, had maximum caps on it to so that they couldn't gouge the ordinary families, and and that worked. You know, banks used to be very boring. The bank manager was the most boring person in the shopping strip, <laughs> and uh, that's the way. Bring back banks, boring. Yeah, well, well, that was what the role of banks was, and that's why they were protected by government sort of rules, and they were regulated by rules to make them safe and secure. And we and and the bank manager was held in high esteem by the by the by the local communities because they were seen as being a person who would safeguard your your small amount of savings and allow and, and help you build a little bit of wealth in your lifetime so that your retirement was reasonable. Now with deregulation and, and the sort of new era of bankers, you know, these young expensive suited flash hairdo type characters uh, suited both female and male. Mm. 
Uh, yeah, it's, uh, it, uh, greed is has no gender. No, no, it's not nothing. You know, it's mostly male, but yeah, we're equal opportunity rat bags. Yeah, but that's just a reflection of the sort of society in that sort of occupation. But uh, you know, we started that they started to vertically integrate. So that and what that meant that they layered on top of that deposit taking. Uh, function a whole lot of other things. So suddenly they are they are financial planners, and they're in every shopping centre and and uh, heavily sending emails and uh, letterbox drops that we will look after your wealth. Yours. And then they become wealth management uh, uh, organisations. Institutions, yeah. And 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 of course, once that sort of vertical layering occurs. These and they set up sort of fronts and separate companies and all of this, and and people get the you know you go to a financial planner and you get the you, you you're you're encouraged to believe that this person is providing you products that are the best in your interest, but really they're working for a, a bank that yeah. that's not that's not in your interest. And you go to a mortgage broker and they're getting these trailing commissions that last forever. And uh, you're you're thinking they're doing the best deal by shopping around and finding the best mortgage, but really they're getting paid by a bank to steer you into their mortgage. Yeah. So where's and, the government in this? Well, the government's just letting it all happen. Yeah. And the and the and the point is the point is that what Hain should have done at a minimum was was break up that vertical integration to break up the ability of to separate all of those different financial services and to legislate so that there can't possibly be... So when you go to a mortgage broker, you're going to someone who's not getting paid by a bank to steer you into their mortgage, but is actually doing the job of finding the cheapest mortgage that suits you. Working for you. Working for you. And when you go to a financial planner, you you should expect that that financial planner is looking at your personal circumstances and appraising them and working out what the best scheme of investments are, not rather than steering you into a particular investment profile that, is being, that he or she is being paid commissions by the product provider, the bank. And that that's wasn't done, so the banks, the banks is, uh, uh, that separation hasn't occurred, it won't occur now unless we get a change of government that's committed to it, and I don't think Labor will do it anyway. And uh, uh, so it all goes on. So, so know. the banks are just breathing a sigh of relief. Well, There's a bit, a bit, a bit of people have been given a payout to piss off, and uh, business as usual. Yeah, I mean, you know, Thorburn will go out with millions. Ken Henry will go out with millions. Thorburn's at retirement age anyway, about, I think. Yeah. Henry's not far off it. He's probably, he's got a big public sector pension from the Treasury anyway, I would expect. And, uh, you know, we don't know who uh, Commissioner Kane, uh, Hain recommended to ASIC for further investigation. This is this so-called, oh, who's going to go to jail type question. But you can bet that hardly any, hardly anybody, and I speculate, no one will go to jail for their criminality. Mm. And what, what the Royal Commission should have done was name names and tell the Australian people exactly who have been engaged in criminal conduct because it's undoubted that, they, that it was, that's, that's what happened. 
because you know they keep talking about things like oh you know what what uh, what's really being put uh, under the spotlight is trust the public has lost trust in us mm. it's like they've all been off to some sort of weird uh, disassociation course <laughs> yeah oh look it look they they just played us for suckers and uh, you know one of the things that we could do still and I did it personally, and that is that not not have a bank account. Mm. Go to go to a building society. Go to a cooperative that's work that's a community a, a community type service. And uh, uh, more and more people should do that. But we've got terrible inertia in our lives. That, that the, you know, it's like mobile phone plans and uh, electricity companies. You, you know, you get stuck, and you, you sort of know that it's not in. That there's probably a better arrangement you get, but it's so complicated that the products they're offering are so hard to work through, and you know, and it's so boring, and it's pretty boring, and uh, uh, so you just sort of sit and say, oh well, you know, just get on, go and watch the footy, and uh, get on with life, and that that's what the banks, and that's what the energy companies, and that's what the telecommunication companies rely on. That we won't, we won't actually behave as market participants uh, looking out for, for ourselves. We, we get stuck by inertia. And it's, you know, I'm not suggesting that, that, that uh, we're, we're misbehaving doing that. It's just a really Yeah, because hassle. there's life to be led. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a hassle. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I've got a PhD in economics and I, I look at some of those energy company offerings and I find it hard to work out what, what, what actually the some of the product they're offering, the impact is on me. And, you know, mm. uh, and, I understand, and that's the intention. Yes. And I understand data and figures because of my, back, my education, my, my training. Uh, so a person who's not, not as educated in uh, figures and stuff like that, you know, how are they going to work it out? I can't work it out. So, well, that's, uh, that, that is a um, thing. Uh, Privatisation is... Uh, <laughs> the reason for why this has happened. I mean, yeah. they've just created a business without there being actual any productivity involved. It's it's and, it's and, and busy no accountability and and no accountability and no oversight. I mean, it's quite clear that ASIC, which is the uh, oh, which is the next question, of course, that there were three organisations or more that were supposed to be involved in the oversight of these people, and quite clearly they've all been out to lunch. They have, and I mean, you know, they say, oh, yeah, we did do things. Yeah, but what they did was they, they engaged in confidential negotiated settlements. So yeah. what, 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 what happened was that they, over, over the last decades, uh, these uh, prudential supervisory authorities that, that, that are in place as government agencies, they sprung illegal behaviour uh, clearly, and what they do is they do they have a uh, facilitation session, they negotiate a settlement, and nobody is the wiser. And and what they should have done was lock people up. And uh, and if if the uh, the prudential authorities had have uh, taken a much more strident approach to this illegality and uh, criminality, then I think that it would have. Uh, 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 helped curtail some of it, not all of it, but probably some of it. And look, the other thing that I would, I think that uh, the government should do now is create a public bank. 
and uh, in the same way that they're talking about streamlining. Oh, superannuation is another one that the banks are oh, involved no. in. Now, that's part of their vertical integration. Uh, uh, and, the, and the market-based funds have been disasters for people saving, you know, with massive management fees and so on. But what the government should, federal government should do is create a public bank and uh, a, low, a low return, like just a social return public bank, use its currency authority to, to backstop it and go back to small loans, small deposits, looking after people's funds and creating... And what that would do would be to create a, a market that uh, the, 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 the greed banks wouldn't be able to compete in mm. unless they dramatically altered their behaviour because everybody would shift their, their business to the public bank. We have and to finish there, Bill. That sounds like a fabulous thing. Thank you very much for talking to us. No worries. Have a nice day. Take yeah. care. Thank you. We got onto a really big subject there. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> right at the end. Because um, that's exactly what uh, we probably should be doing. Coming up next is Asia Pacific Currents. We've hardly got any time to say goodbye. Goodbye, yeah. Rebecca. Yes. Goodbye. <laughs> Till next week. listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.